You know, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, we've been in the book of Esther, and this morning we're going to conclude our series in the book of Esther, which is all about the Lord. Even though His name is never mentioned in the book, it's all about His invisible hand at work in the lives of people to accomplish His purpose. And we left last week on a high note where Haman's plot to hang Queen Esther's father figure, Mordecai, it was foiled in a you know, stunning turn of events. Haman was hanged on the very gallows that he had built to hang Mordecai. And even though Haman now is out of the picture, there still remains an unresolved issue that threatens the very existence of the lives of millions of Jewish people in the Persian Empire. You know, earlier in the story of Esther, we learned that Haman uh, created this plot to destroy Mordecai, who was a Jewish person, and his people, the Jews, in Persia. And so he manipulated the king in order to pass this edict that said, on a certain day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, any Persian could kill a Jewish person and take their belongings. And they made that law. That was a law. And even though Haman is dead, this law that he drafted is still in play. And so we're going to begin this morning by looking at Esther's response to Haman's law. And this is where we pick up the story in chapter 8 in the book of Esther. The king gives Esther the house of Haman and elevates Mordecai to the position that Haman once held, the highest ranking official in the palace. And again, Esther goes before the king, and she asks the king this in chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamidatha which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? So this is her request to the king. And later on in verse 8 we read that an edict that was written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring could not be revoked. And so... What do you do? Well, what we learn in chapter 8 is that a new edict can be written. Even though the old one cannot be revoked, a new edict can be written to address the issues of the first. And so the king gives Mordecai and Esther the permission to write a new edict. And let me just say this on a side note. That this is the way a country should deal with unjust laws is by replacing them with just laws. Every country at some point in time has laws that are unjust. Our countries have laws that are unjust, that have been unjust. And what you need to do about that is you need to replace those laws with just laws. And as followers of Jesus, we should be very interested in justice and righteousness. And if we become aware of an unjust law then what we should do is leverage ourselves and what we have to replace it with a just law. I agree with Martin Luther King Jr. who said this in his letter from a Birmingham jail. 
He said there are two types of laws, just and unjust. He says, I will be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. He says, I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. He goes on to say, now what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. And he says any law that degrades human personality is unjust. Now more could be said about that. But in the story of Esther, we see Mordecai and Esther responding to the unjust law created by Haman with a law that paves the way for justice. Verse 11 and 13 through 13 tells us what this new law says. It says, The king's order authorized, this is the new law, the king's order authorized the Jews in every city to arm and defend themselves to the death, killing anyone who threatens them or their children or their women, and confiscating for themselves anything owned by their enemies. The day set for this in all King Xerxes or Hasherus' provinces was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. So this new law makes a path for justice in that it gives the Jewish people the right to assemble and to defend themselves if they are attacked. So this is what's happening within Persia. Now, if, if we want to bring this down even to an individual level, you know, as I was thinking about this, you know, just, just like the Persians, they passed this unjust law against a group of people. I was thinking about me and you, and I was wondering, you know, how many of us have had things happen to us, things said about us, things done to us that were unjust? Things that we cannot change. They were done, and we cannot, we cannot change them. We've all had things happen to us like Haman's edict, Haman's law that cannot be revoked. People have said things to us or about us. People have done things to us that have hurt us. And maybe they've even caused us to think less of ourselves because of these past hurts. And so we have a choice to make, just like Mordecai and Esther had a choice to make. We have a choice to make. Will we continue to allow our past to paralyze us Or will we begin to believe what God says about us in Christ? That we are new creations. That we are made in His image. And that He wants to use us in His work in the world. We can continue to believe that we were once alone. Or we can believe what Jesus says and that He will never leave us or forsake us. We can either continue to allow that unjust comment or experience to have power over us. Or 
like Mordecai and Esther, we can seek to move forward and seek justice and righteousness. So we all have these choices to make. And so as we move forward in the story into chapter 9, we learn actually that the vast majority of Persians did not act upon Haman's edict. Millions of people in the Persian Empire. And the vast majority of the population did not act on Haman's edict. However, we know that at least 75,000 Persians took advantage of Haman's law and sought to kill, steal, and destroy the Jewish people and their possessions. And the reason we know that number is because it's said that that many people tried to attack the Jews and it was that many people that were killed by the Jews. And so the Jewish people uh, celebrated a fantastic victory that day where their enemies tried to kill them, steal their property, and yet they rose up and were able to defend themselves and they were victorious. And if you've been following this story from beginning, from the beginning, then you know that this victory is the Lord's. Because all throughout this story, God's invisible hand has been at work in the affairs of men that made this victory possible. And we recognize this truth as we read the story, and the Jewish people recognize this truth as they live this story. And this is why, and this is how the culmination of the whole book is in chapter 9. Because the writer wants to explain this is why we celebrate the Feast of Purim. And so as I read chapter 9, verses 20 through 28, I want you to hear how and why this feast was implemented. We read in verse 20, it says, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamidatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at, the time, at that time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. So the Feast of Purim was put in place to remind the Jewish people of God's deliverance. 
It was put in place to remind them of God's deliverance. And then every year, they would gather. They would eat a great meal together. They would give gifts of food to one another. And they would give gifts to the poor in order to remember the faithfulness of God. Now let me ask you a question. Why do you think Mordecai and Esther created such a specific way of remembering this event? I mean, why didn't they just say, Hey everybody, this was an important thing that happened. Just remember it. Come up with a way to remember it. Remember it. But no, they, they implemented a feast day that every Jewish person ought to celebrate every year. So why did they do that? I recently read an article called entitled Food and Memory. Food and Memory. And the article explained why events tend to be more memorable if they are associated with food. Here's what the author says. He says, Emotion and novelty tend to make events more memorable. In other words, if you have extreme emotion one way or the other during an event, you tend to remember it. Or if it's novel, if it's something new, a new experience, you tend to remember it. But then he says, but those tied in some way with food may make for even more powerful memories. Now he goes on to explain some of the neuroscience behind this idea, which I'm not going to attempt to do. Simply put though, the gist of the article is this. If you add good food to an occasion, it makes it more memorable. Hey, this is hard science here, everybody, okay? This was in the Harvard, whatever it is, the uh, Harvard Press blog. Okay, this is, a, this is serious stuff. If you add good food, it makes the event more memorable. So I'm going to mention a few types of food. And I just want you just to, to hear, hear what I say. And then I want you to just allow your mind to... Uh, recall some memories. Okay, So I'm going to mention certain types of food and then I wonder what memories are going to come to your mind. So what comes to your mind when I say cake? You know, for many of you, you think birthday cake. And you may even think a specific type of birthday cake. You may even go back to a specific birthday party. It's just linked with that food. Or how about this? Turkey and dressing. Turkey and dressing. I mean, you're going back, probably, to Thanksgiving. And then you're probably going back to when all your family gathers together. And then you may be even going back to, you're seeing where you usually sit. And you're seeing everybody around. You're seeing the house you you met in. I mean, it's all linked in with this this food. How about this? Cracker Jacks. Some of you are like, Cracker Jacks? What is that? (laughs) Others of you are thinking, Baseball! Baseball! You can remember sitting at that baseball game eating Cracker Jacks and it's all coming back to you. Or um, how about um, candy canes? How about square pizza and cartons of milk? Yeah, everybody's going back to the school and the cafeteria. and You know, your mind's there and you see it. And everybody's getting hungry. What about, uh, you know, grilled hamburgers and hot dogs or, you know, barbecue chicken or ribs? I mean, you're thinking, that's what we're doing today. I mean, right after this, we're going to grill Fourth of July cookout. And I have one for myself that may not be uh, very helpful for you. 
But I thought of this one, and of course my family would be aware of it. Cheese eggs. Now my sister knows it. Cheese eggs. Some of you think, I don't have any memories tied to that. But see, for me, it was a dish that my granny used to make Christmas morning for breakfast. And so when you say it, my mind goes to her house. And I think about that morning. I can see the room. I can see where I would sit. I mean, it's all tied together with just the mention of that food item. And it's just interesting, the power of association between food and memory. And so, you're beginning to understand that you know, some of our fondest family memories center around holidays or family get-togethers where there's a lot of good food. A feast, a celebration. And so now you're beginning to understand why Mordecai and Esther sought to preserve the memory of God's faithfulness by implementing a yearly feast. Because they knew by doing that, it would ingrain that memory. It would cause that memory to sink in, not only for the people who experienced it, but for generations to come. And this was just one of many feasts that the Jews celebrated throughout the year. And many of you know that as you read the Old Testament. But each of these festivals, each of these feasts, each of these big meals were tied to an event of God's deliverance of His people. And they were meant to trigger the memory of the faithfulness of God. Now I wonder, when was the last time that you celebrated the Feast of Purim? (laughs) If you're like me, I'm a Gentile. (laughs) I'm not a Jew. So I've never celebrated the Feast of Purim. Some of you may have celebrated it. Because Jewish people still celebrate it to this day. But I've never celebrated it personally. But you know, even though we may have never celebrated that feast, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you've experienced God's deliverance in your life. A deliverance that's even more significant than the deliverance that was experienced and recorded in the book of Esther. You see, Haman's law targeted a group of people and sought to put them to death. But you know, there is a law that is even more destructive than Haman's law. The Apostle Paul calls it, in Romans 8-2, the law of sin and death. And this law of sin and death targets every person and puts every person on a path to eternal death, which is separation from God. Every person, Jew and Gentile. Mordecai's law in the book of Esther gave the the Jewish people the right to defend themselves against their enemy and it provided a pathway for justice and temporary deliverance. And just as there was a more destructive form of Haman's law, so there is a more glorious form of Mordecai's law. Paul calls it the law of the spirit of life. Whereas Mordecai's law provided temporary relief The law of the spirit of life provides eternal relief. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 1 and 2. Just listen to these two verses. The first one is very familiar to some of you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, why is that? 
Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So did you hear that? The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And this is the, this, this is the reason why the deliverance in Christ is more significant than the deliverance in the story of Esther. And the reason is because it is an eternal deliverance. See, all those acts of God's deliverance throughout the Old Testament are pointing to this great deliverance in Christ because it is an eternal deliverance. So if you're in Christ, you can know that you will be with God forever. If you're in Christ, then you may not experience deliverance in a certain circumstance that you're facing now or that you will face, but you are you do have access in Christ to this, what, what uh, Paul tells us is the, is the peace that passes all understanding. Because we have been forgiven of our sin in Christ and we have been made a child of God. Now let me ask you this. How do you remember your deliverance? How do you remember how God has saved you and made you His own? We look at Esther, we look at other books in the Old Testament, we see these feasts implemented to help us to remember. So how do we remember God's faithfulness in our lives? And I would say there are two main ways God has given us to remember what He has done. And the first way we remember is by taking the Lord's Supper. You know, I think it is no accident that Jesus told His followers that the way you are to remember that He died for you and for me is by eating bread and drinking the fruit of the vine. You eat this meal to remember what Christ has done. And so in a few weeks, toward the end of July, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together as a church family. And as we do that, we will have these tangible reminders that will prompt us to remember what Christ has done for us. So that's one, one thing God has given us to remind us, the Lord's Supper. The second way we remember is by gathering weekly with the church for worship. When we gather, we remember. When we gather, we remember. We remember who God is. We remember His character. We remember, we remember, remember the fact that we are sinful in need of grace and forgiveness. We remember what Christ has done for us. We remember what God's calling us to do. He knows that when we gather, we remember. This is why the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us to not forsake or neglect meeting together. Why? Because we need to remember. And this is one of the ways we remember, is we feast on God's Word. That's how we remember together. And so we need help remembering why. Same reason why they implemented the feast, is because we have bad memories, right? We fail to remember, we, we fail to remember the faithfulness of God in our lives. And therefore, God gives us these reminders, these set reminders, so that we can be triggered back to remember actually what He has done for us. So listen again to Romans 8, 1 and 2. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a good reminder. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And I wonder, is that, is that true of you? I mean, have you been set free in Christ? If not, I want to encourage you to give your life to Christ and be set free free from this law of sin and death. 
Because if your hope is based on anything else, anyone, anything else that can be taken from you, then you have no hope. Only Christ can set us free and open to us a pathway that we can live out who God wants us to be both now and for eternity. If you're in Christ, then I hope this morning you are remembering. You are remembering how God has delivered you. You are remembering what Christ has done for you. And I hope you will remember how through Jesus, our sorrow will be turned into gladness and our mourning into a holiday. But if we are going to worship God today, we must remember. Let us pray. Father, help us to remember, not only when we partake of the Lord's Supper and when we gather for worship with your church, But every single day, help us to have good memories. Help us to to know who you are, what you've done for us. Help us to be constantly reminded of your faithfulness, your love, your grace. The truths that you speak about who we are. Lord, help us to remember that. And Lord, help us as your people to pursue righteousness, pursue justice. And to represent you well in this city and in this nation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.